club good fuck knows what episode we can't we, we're completely out of sync with the episodes now so once you get 10 then <clears throat> i think it's gonna be easy to remember that's it mm. but we're not there yet no. i think once you get to 10 you're an actual yeah. podcast is this like a fetus so like it doesn't count until it's like 12 <laughs> <laughs> let's just kick it off there <laughs> Pro-choice Josh Gray. <laughs> we are with Colby James, known by many other names, who is a ecologist, amongst other things, and specializes especially in sharks and crocodiles. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. <laughs> you got such a nice voice. This is the nicest voice we've had. I know. I could listen to this. Yeah, yeah. This is going to be... A bit of ASMR. This is going to be <laughs> Shark MR. If you lick that microphone, yeah. we're done. <laughs> Wrap it up. Have you listened to ASMR? Uh, not on purpose. <laughs> you know how they had those like Twitch Twitch chicks in like uh, hot tubs and stuff at one point, just yeah. like licking stuff. And I never did. I never went down the Twitch hole. I tried to sample some for some music, and it just was so gross. It was really, really gross. Just like people's mouths opening. Yeah, I could imagine you go down a weird rabbit hole as well. Yeah, that's oh. it. Oh my god, <laughs> people are into it though. Like people really are into that shit. Yeah, people also choke themselves to death while masturbating, so it doesn't oh, really surprise me at this point. <laughs> exactly. You never know what you're into until you try it. <laughs> so tell us what you're up to at the moment, dude. So I've just come off the back of six weeks of traveling back and forth to the Pilbara to do all sorts of different environmental field work and marine science monitoring, that kind of stuff. Been working as a consultant for the past couple of years and just doing a bunch of site projects in my usual stuff, which is sharks, crocs, whatever else I can get a handle on. You've got some experience with the the reason that you kind of popped up for us to talk to was um, obviously the the shark angle, which has been something that living in WA for Certainly for the last like 15 years, sharks were not a thing. I remember I had a friend that moved over from Durban in South Africa mm-hmm. and he was like, man, there's shark attacks in Durban and we'd read about it in like surfing magazines and stuff. And I was just like, man, that's crazy. Why would you get in the water when these creatures are there? And then correct me if I'm wrong, the first shark attack in 50 years was the guy that got taken at Cottesloe. Yeah, it was like 2005 about there. Yeah, and it fully... I went for him, right? It knocked, like, knocked people over to get to him. It's in knee-deep water, just yeah. like inside the pylon kind of shit. Yeah, it's- and it had half-beached itself in order to get him. Yeah, And I remember when that happened, all those movies like Jaws sort of became a lot more prevalent in my mind. So I was surfing all the time, like bodyboarding, and I was only young, and I found that I couldn't get it out of the back of my mind, and it affected the enjoyment of the situation. And as much as I still did go out a fair bit, as that tapered off, more shark attacks started happening. Mm. And then it became, is it the highest rate of shark attacks? I haven't checked the stats in a while, but it's pretty high up there. It's like South Africa, Australia, Reunion Island. Uh, that's a massive one, but it's bull sharks there, not not great whites. But we're a pretty big hotspot here. So yeah. it hits home really hard. For us it's pretty Perth. crazy because we don't really know why. Right? I did a bit of research on this and there's some theories around why. And I'd heard some theories which I'd kind of taken to be reality. Mm -hmm. And then when I was researching them, I couldn't find anything. So it means that they were probably like folklore. There's so many variables and it's hard to nail down what it could be. There's there's various stuff like the protection status is only recent. So in the past sort of 30 years, they've probably grown in numbers quite a lot. So there's that element. There's the changing coastlines and water temperatures, which is big. Uh, different kind of fish populations growing or, you know, moving up and down the coast, migrating and spawning and the rest. So there's many different triggers and it's hard to nail down why there is 
perhaps more now than there was before? Or is it that there's more people in the water than before? Yeah, I was reading a little bit about that and they were saying about how um, there was more people in the water and stuff like that, overfishing, so the sharks have to come closer to the shore. The one that I had heard, which I spouted to a few people, which I now know is probably not right at all, was that there was some sort of tectonic Ooh, shift wow. northwest of Western Australia. Okay. And it created some form of mass oxygenation of the water and all of this marine life was like just flocking there and they couldn't figure out why. Right. So I was like, I'm going to research that. I'm going to talk to you about that. Yeah. And I couldn't find a thing about it. So That's someone said it. it. Yeah, yeah, someone said it to me and then I've been like, saying that to people <laughs> so that would be sick if yeah. that was the case it's like a shark volcano yeah yeah that's what the ocean. and i was like man we're going to talk about shark volcanoes <laughs> this is going to be crazy and it turns out it's just more people in the water or migration or whatever yeah it's a myriad of factors it's really hard to nail down and you know there's lots of different studies into individual variables that have started coming out where as it's become more of an issue and more of a contentious point of you know uh, I guess academia to figure out, but um, yeah, it's really hard to say what it could be. It is weird though. Like it's got to be weird from a scientific point of view. You know, me not being a scientist and telling you that it's got to be weird from a scientific point of view. <laughs> <laughs> but it does seem strange that there was none, and then there was a lot. Yeah, I mean, there could have been, you know, a big shift in the Lewin current that runs down our coast, um, you know, with whatever sort of higher water temperatures that usually fluctuate close to the coast, perhaps have spread out a bit further. And I know there's a lot colder water temperatures at certain times of the year now than there used to be. So that's one of the bigger factors that I've kind of seen. But it, yeah, again, it could be so many things. Yeah, I remember I had friends that were working in Durian Bay and they would always say, man, there are so many great white sharks. They're like everywhere. Yeah. And they all had theories when people started getting attacked and stuff about the different reasons for it. Is it strange that there's been an increase? I don't think it's strange. The biggest thing is mistaken identity. That's one of the kind of theories that is held strongest in that just the attack style of a great white is very ambush style. So they kind of sit in the depths and kind of make their decision on whether to attack when they're, you know, could be 20 meters below the surface and their vision is shit. Like they have terrible vision. And so sharks have seven to eight senses, depending on who you ask. We have five. So they've got others that they rely on. But in their ambush hunting style, they rely on their vision heavily and it's really poor. So the mistaken identity theory kind of makes a lot of sense. And there's actually been a paper published this year where they've tested that theory for the first time in a scientific study and gotten some solid evidence to prove that mistaken identity is a thing. So it's not strange to think that they can attack animals of any type. If they're bigger than their prey, they'll go for it. If they're the same size, they'll be hesitant. If they're smaller, they definitely won't unless there's some kind of freak dinosaur or something. Or they but, feel scared or something. Yeah. But, reactive. But size is a big factor in um, predator-prey kind of interactions. And so a 4.5-meter great white seeing a you know 1.8-meter surfer or two meters on a longboard or whatever, that's easy going for them. And what's the sort of average size of a shark uh so at maturity they reach about three and a half meters three to three and a half um not 100 on that fact we're not about facts, the facts here. but um, we can go we can go anywhere <laughs> but, <I> 17 mean, <laughs> meters <laughs> that's gonna be the name of this podcast i saw the megalodon apparently the 17 meter shark <laughs> it's been found apparently it so. was this big <laughs> The submarine, but no, they like most of the white sharks I've seen have been sort of two to two point five meters, but they get up to five meters, and I've seen five to you know five point two once, and 
you know, there's a lot more girth and there is mm. length when they get to that point as well. Where do you see them? Uh, mostly in South Africa. I've done two stints there and spent about, you know, sort of eight months all up over there and like went out and was working on a shark cage vessel the first time. And so we'd see them every day and you get the whole range of, you know, 1.52 metre juveniles all the way through to your three and a half, four metres. And then the second time I went, I was in a different part in the south where it's a lot colder and they kind of segregate by size as well. And down towards Hansby or Hansby, mm-hmm. as they say, they get a lot bigger sharks there. So I saw a lot of the f- sort of five metre ones down that way. And were you in the cage? Yeah, I got in the cage most days. Um, sometimes it's actually better to see them from the top. I've still never been in a seafloor cage. There's only like one place in the world that does it. Guadalupe mm. Islands, right? Sorry, two places mm. in the world. There There's go. Guadalupe <laughs> and there's South Australia. So, Oh, uh, do, is that Calypso? Um, do they do the seafloor or is it another one? Rodney Fox. Ah, okay. So he's the famous the guy, guy that got bitten yeah. in the 60s and like his whole torso is covered in stitches and then he started his shark cage diving enterprise and yeah, he's got this really awesome trip where you go down and you dive on the floor and... They're a lot more interactive down there because that's where they sort of hang out. You have to really entice them with a lot of chum and stuff to get them to the surface. So, Just quickly, what are your thoughts on that? Um, Like the tours they do in Adelaide, you know, Rodney Fox, Calypso, Mm -hmm. with the way that the government historically has acted towards anything that's halfway fun, Mm -hmm. surely they're going to put a stop to that because surely you can't keep chumming and doing the practices that they do enticing them in and then on the flip side have a we're trying to protect you against shark attack stance yeah absolutely and yeah it changes their behavior massively um i see pros and cons to both sides there's a massive pro in just education and i see people's minds change literally in one dive after they see them that you know from this intense fear to fascination in 30 seconds Mm -hmm. um so there's pros and cons to it but it definitely changes their behavior and it's good that they're quite offshore and like, I'd love to see it in Perth one day, way off the back of Rottnest or something. You know, there's so many sharks out here, you know, maybe not so many whites, but it'd be really cool to see tigers in that kind of setting as well and realise how docile they are as long as you don't motivate them too much with fish blood and, you know, moderation like anything, right? It's pretty funny because you're just kind of giving it shark blue balls, right? Like you're just, yeah. you're yeah. just fucking with it forever, like basically. <laughs> and that's a shark attack. <laughs> Don't poke the bear. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it is a big thing. And so um, a lot of the research we do where it involves chumming because like the likelihood of actually seeing sharks in the wild to get a good number of um, kind of interactions to base your study off is really, really slim. So you kind of need something to maximize your chances of seeing them. But it's always done well offshore away from sort of, you know, human settlements and where people go surfing and, you know, keep that clear distinction between populations. And, you know, these things could migrate anywhere after that. You never know what happens. But if you can control that one factor of not doing it right on the beach. But then the other side is you get these trophy shark hunters that sit right on Cottesloe and and put their chum out and bring in like four meter tigers right on the beach where people go swimming and take their families and stuff. So it's on the other side of the coin, you're like, well, if I can do research to improve this, I should be able to go and do this without causing too many issues. And that's where the politics sort of starts to come in. And it's one of those things where absolutely everyone has an opinion on this. It comes up at every dinner table in Perth, I'm sure. So it's I kind of tend to lean with beach users and people that spend their time on the ocean, whether that's fishermen, divers, there's surfers, swimmers, all sorts. And it's about, you know, making sure the people that are out there interacting with these things or coming in close quarters with them can coexist in a way that's beneficial for them. And everyone else that has an opinion when they read the paper at the server on a Monday morning can just go and read some more, perhaps maybe not off the West Australian. It's so true because you're not really worthy of having an opinion if you're not 
in there? We don't know enough realistically is the caveat that the whole thing hinges upon because you mm. can't make an educated decision one way or the other. When you don't it, have the facts. When you don't have the facts and we just don't understand enough. Yeah, you might cull them, but what impact is that going to have? We should have learned our lesson with the cane toad and the fucking <laughs> whatever else we brought in, the fox or the rabbit or some shit. I don't know what we brought in, but it was all terrible. There are like a lot of people, especially surfers, say to me, oh, it's because we protected the whales. So then the sharks come in to, to come hunt the whales because that's their natural prey and you know, yada, mm-hmm. yada, yada, yada. And there could be merit in that. And yeah, there absolutely could yeah. be. But there also is equal parts something else that you might fucking destroy by, by changing it again. First, understand the problem as much as you can. And I don't think enough energy has been put into understanding it um, because it's really fucking hard. Yeah, <laughs> They're not time. here sitting on the floor and we can't look at them. You've got to actually go go looking, which was going to lead me into my next question, which is, what can you tell us about, you know, data um, around what you've actually got from the ones that you are looking at in the north? Like, where are they going? What are they doing? Are they hanging around? Are they fucking off? And how are you measuring that? Uh, so, mostly through tagging, you get satellite tags or different kinds that kind of monitor them and they ping to satellites as their fins breach the surface and send a whole bunch of data up and they can track them over years and they all go in wherever the fuck they want, basically. Um you know, there's there's a big population of about 1,500 they've kind of estimated in the west coast of Australia, west to kind of Adelaide sort of this area. Is just great, this is Great Whites? Yeah, this is just Great Whites. And some of them go back and forth to South Africa on the same day every year. Some of them go up into the middle of the Indian Ocean. Some go uh, east over to New Zealand. They go wherever the fuck they want. They go to the Shark Cafe? Yeah, Shark Cafe <laughs> yeah, in California. That's a big hot spot. That's yeah. crazy. And they don't know why, right? They, they're still figuring it out. They're doing, they dive to massive depths of like a kilometer or two and do all sorts of weird stuff out there. So, tectonic plates, oxygen. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Shark Cano. <laughs> Upwelling. <laughs> For people that don't know, there is a spot called Shark, that's been dubbed Shark Cafe that is, um, seems to be this massive hotspot where sharks just go and hang out and not do much while they're there. So they're still trying to figure out what's kind of going on out there and it'll probably take a while, but um, whether it could be, you know, they're meeting up to, for mating reasons or there's, you know, a good feeding hotspot, perhaps a lot of oxygen. Um, <laughs> they don't really know, but there's some cool stuff that's going out, going on out there. Like California is obviously highly funded. They've got their massive research institutions and they're doing some really cool stuff. So... They've got camera tags now that they can deploy onto their fins with big suckers that stay on for a certain period of time. And they've been recording sort of praying events in other areas and they've started using these out there to see what they're doing when they're diving down to these massive depths and, you know, interacting with so many uh, so many other sharks because they're such a solitary species. It's, yeah, it's such a weird phenomenon. Is there much known about how they communicate? Uh, not really, but it could be a myriad of things. So... Um, Obviously, they have really good smell, as you often would hear through through the great fright. They've got uh, this olfactory sense that can pick up a, you know, a drop of blood in a million litres of water. But um, So they would often use that. There could be chemical cues of whatever sort of means. Um, they also have these sort of lateral lines kind of things down their body, which are sort of like the little hairs kind of like in your ear that you use for hearing, but they sense kind of pressure waves and movements. So that's how kind of schooling fish can all stay you know, oriented in the same way as the school. Um, similar thing with sharks, so they could be communicating through that. Uh, there's various things. 
the ones that impressed me the most is watching the really big ones move on a dime, like they want to change direction or something. You don't expect something that size to be able to turn and move off that fast. Wild. It's crazy. <laughs> They've got so much power and muscle in the back of their tail. That there's this spot called the caudal peduncle or peduncaduncle, as some people call it. <laughs> um, and there's just so much mass there and they can just flick the tail at 90 degrees like that. It's... Yeah, they're so powerful. It's uh, it is weird though because I can't really think of another species. Although I, I'm, I know fuck all, let's face facts. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but like the shark thing, you know how you were talking about before. Not really many people know. No one really knows where they go, what they do. They're a little bit of a uh, an unknown. Um, but then you'll hear of places like we touched on before, like Guadalupe, who have the same sharks coming back all the time mm-hmm. and they, you know, they recognize them so they know when they come. Are you seeing things like, you know, are those those particular sharks might leave Guadalupe potentially and then for, for an extended period of time and come back or do they always seem to hang around the same areas or are they literally just go wherever? So, there's yeah, there's, there's often migratory patterns. So, they'll return to Guadalupe every year for well, no one knows what, but mm-hmm. probably feeding on something. There's, you know, a good kind of drop off on that island. So, it could be filled with, you know, good prey sources below. Um, but yeah, a lot of them have pretty, pretty strong migratory patterns. Like I said, they will go, you know, they'll start their, their trip to South Africa on the same day every year and return on the mm. same day or month every year. So a lot of it can be predictable, but then they just throw in this level of fuckery as well that just says, I do what I want out here. <laughs> you were talking before as well about um, a company you were working for doing the shark repellent mm-hmm. sort of stuff, and now, uh, like an electronic thing, I assume, like a shark yeah. shield kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Is that stuff successful? Yeah, it was a pretty good study. Um, it took three years to come out, so there's a whole sort of you know barrage of hoops that you have to jump through to get a scientific paper done especially when it's on such a contentious is- mm. issue as white sharks but the study went really well like we knew years ago that it was 66 percent reduction in interactions with the board when it was on compared to when it was off so it's really good like it's slightly less than shark shield but there's pretty fundamental differences in their designs which has pros and cons in and of itself so what's the what's the one that you were working for so it's called repeller or r-p-e-l-a um, and it's designed by a local board maker here in Perth that just had enough, like, you know, this 15 years of constant shark attacks, you know, ruined his industry of board making. He went from making however many a month to, you know, one or two in one summer when there was a spate of attacks. And so he decided, you know, I've got to try and tackle this and figure out a resolution for it. And so he designed this electronic shark deterrent, which fits it into the board. So he's gone that next kind of step of engineering to, like, focus on the performance of the board and not impacting that anyway while still providing a good level of protection for the surfer so it's a really cool device i'm not a surfer myself i Mm. tried for for years through high school and just fell off every time Mm. and gave up and went diving instead because it's easier to stay under than it is to stand up (laughs) but you're more likely to get taken right because the divers are the ones that seem to get yeah it's divers and surfers are definitely the two big groups that cop it um, but I think surfers are in that really vulnerable position on the surface when, you know, this ambush hunting style is mm. their foray. Um, you just sit in dark, literally. Yeah, you got no chance. At least, with, you know, you see some of those videos of those divers and, you know, the, the usually the smaller ones too, not the bigger ones. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you can talk about that in a minute, but... Um, like they'll come around, they'll come close, they'll get a little bit too close, and the diver can at least see him and fuck him off. Obviously, they yeah, the video always the shark goes away. You're like, oh fuck, where's it gone? Yeah, because yeah. you can't get the GoPro back when no. they go eating, and you can't look when you're trying to get out of the boat yeah. as well. That's when I always expect them to come and snap them up. <laughs> Never happens. Oh. So with that stuff, like um, 
obviously the the other big one was Shark Shark Shield. Shark Shield. Yeah. Um those things are both now essentially scientifically proven to create have a reduction. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um and you know, they're backed pretty strongly by, you know, a peer reviewed kind of study that's been published, you know, in a proper scientific journal and yeah, they've both got good backing. But um for years and years there was only one. It was only Shark Shield that their slogan is um the world's only scientifically <laughs> proven shark deterrent, which is just a handful of words. I can't read yeah. yep. But anyway, um, now there's two. And they're both WA-based? Yeah. Uh, so, Shark Shield is technically South African, but it was um, pioneered in the east coast of Australia. So, But they, they used to have an office here, so they had a big you know, base in Western Australia for a long time. They're now over east again. But, yeah, there's just this hot pot of kind of, mm. you know, people that are trying to solve this problem here in Perth, you know, there's like three or four companies that I've kind of worked with here all doing different deterrents. Yeah, I've seen some visual ones, like a dude making a wetsuit and some other bits and pieces, but yeah. that repeller thing um, in, uh, in I suppose, a dumbed-down version, like what is it actually, what technology is it based on? Like what is it actually fucking with? To, is it to making re- a sound or is it... Yeah. Is it- so it's an electrical field, which, you know, is a high-voltage signal that pumps out. And so it's designed to fuck with their um, electro-receptive organ. Yes, yes absolutely. <laughs> so, so they have another um, sense, which, you know, is mind-boggling again to me, is electro-reception. So they can sense, you know, the electrical fields off this microphone if they were here. Um, it's a crazy sense. And it's really – it's designed for um, sort of – like foraging in the sand, like it kind of started up in the lower sharks where, you know, they forage through sand for, you know, little critters and mm. whatever else. So they could detect the heart rate and then they would go for that. Mm-hmm. And so it's a really sensitive organ. And so if you pump the shit out of the voltage on this deterrent, it's, you know, it overwhelms them. Like if you, you know, if you played on your decks, you know, at 130 decibels right now, you know, it, we would leave the room pretty, yeah. pretty quickly. Or just put your hands in there. Yeah. <laughs> is there any argument uh around uh like actually attracting sharks with with those this is an interesting one and this is a hot surfer kind of theory that um i hear getting around the traps and um there 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 is a tiny bit of merit to it i'll give them that but um you, you often hear this thing you know that um water is a great conductor of electricity it's actually not. So the strength of an electrical field, well, salt water at least anyway, um, it dissipates exponentially with distance, which means um, the, the strength of it drops off quite significantly with distance from the source. And so, you know, within 10 to 50 metres of, you know, a surfboard that's emitting this device, there's no way they could sense it. It's down to the tiniest, most minuscule sort mm. of strength that it couldn't be pulling them in from, you know, the great depths to come and get you. So then, hot take, if the Great White is a hunter by ambush and comes from 20, 30 metres below the surface, what's stopping that two-tonne animal before he hits the board and senses that is there? Uh, or are you just hoping that it's stopping those sort of inquisitive inquisitive bites? Yeah. yeah so okay. th- there's nothing you can do to stop <laughs> a highly motivated animal. Mm-hmm. And it, you'd hope to get them on, you know, that point of inquisitiveness where they're checking you out first and so what these deterrents sell is like you, you can't guarantee that they will work 100% all the time and protect you like that's just impossible but what they give you is more time to get out of the water from the point where you realize there's a potential uh-huh. shark threat and keep them away and that's what a lot of the variables of the studies are focused on is 
the distance from the device when it's on versus when it's off and how much time it takes them to interact with it in the same kind of set. So it just buys you time. And hopefully, you know, they're not going to just come straight out of the pack with a big ambush and, mm. you know, go for the first thing they see. Yeah. Which they are pretty intelligent animals and highly inquisitive. So it's like it's a big decision to make both for their energy needs and all the rest to make that hunting decision. Mm. So you'd hope that there's a bit of, you know, time before they decide that they're going to attack that you can, you know, get out of the water. Yeah, that makes sense. And from what you've seen, like, firsthand, you know, they... I think it's fairly well known that these things, oh, these things, the sharks uh, have like their personalities, like mm-hmm. your dogs or your cats or like mm-hmm. anything else, like us. Um, have you seen indicators in animals that would make them appear more likely to be aggressive towards anything, uh, human or otherwise, versus ones that might be more docile as a as a as a personality trait not necessarily as like that that particular set of uh situational you know whatever does that make sense yeah absolutely um i think there's there's kind of kind of behavioral patterns that you know pavlov's dog kind of thing if you know if there's sharks that hang around fishing boats and get a feed at the harbor every day where they come in and dump all their their fish carcasses out then they they become quite aggressive and used to humans over time um, and it's kind of a matter of, you know, how much exposure to humans have they previously had versus, you know, are they truly wild, which there aren't many wild hotspots left in the world now. Um, so, yeah, they definitely have personalities and different levels of conditioning towards humans, which um, can be for better or worse. And that's what these deterrents can play into as well, mm. is they can condition them against interacting with humans. Yeah, that's a good point. So when you talk about like, it's it's interesting because when we're obviously taught to fear great white sharks. It's like the apex predator. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you see Shark Week on TV and there's they'll have like a great white chasing the boat and they're, they're obviously like fucking with it and trying Drama. to make it as angry as possible yeah, yeah. and make it really dramatic. Yeah. And then you see, you know, Instagram girls swimming with great whites and like holding onto their dorsal fins and stuff. Mm-hmm. Obviously it's the same animal and and like any animal they have a a large spectrum of moods when you do see people sort of swimming along them and and saying what beautiful creatures they are and things like that are they just sleeping and chilling out next to them or if sharks know that there's a human and they kind of identify that as not being a seal for example Mm -hmm. are they like yeah i'm not really that bothered it can do whatever it wants yeah definitely and i'll start off with i'm not sure who's the biggest terrorist whether it's discovery channel or these you know um shark harassers that go up and hang off the dorsal fin but um yeah they're they're intelligent and when they realize that you're a human or you're not from the ocean if you're breathing bubbles or whatever it is i'm comfortable swimming with white sharks in any setting where there's good visibility you know you're not hanging on the surface for too long you can get down and you're clearly not you know prey looking seal in a black wetsuit i'm gonna hold you up because that's the craziest thing I've ever fucking heard. So you just, just what? So if they can see you yep. and you're like, I'm going to be fine here. Cause I know that you've been in the cages. Mm-hmm. So you're like, okay, there's, there's great white sharks down here. Mm-hmm. And I go, yeah, there's a number of, I'm not reckless with it, but um, there'd be a number of factors before I made the decision to get in. Visibility is number one. If you've got 20 meters sort of Bahamas viz that you get out in Guadalupe. Yeah. That's pretty safe the amount of sharks that are nearby and if there's been much chumming going on 
So if they're naturally inquisitive and they've come up to the boat and, you know, there's not too much interaction going on, I would consider getting in if it was, you know, I could read the animal and its personality and see that it's not being aggressive or whatever. And yeah, the number of sharks, I guess. So like my biggest thing is it's the shark that you don't see that is your worry. I've gotten into the water with them before where I've kind of sat on the back of the boat ladder and known that, you know, if there's any sharks behind me, there's at least this ladder, like they would crunch you in any second. But, you know, there's mm. something there to know that something's got your back at least and you can focus on the one in front of you. <laughs> Definitely. Mm. They're smart and they can recognise you. It's like looking in the eye with a shark for the first time is yeah, pretty life-changing. And that's why these people come out of these cages all the time and have completely gone from fear to fascination in an instant because they are so inquisitive and curious and not just mindless eating machines. It's funny because I was in um, the South in America, just outside of New Orleans, and we went to like an alligator. It, was, it wasn't a park, like it was like a lake when they take yep. you out on the boats. It's a similar thing where they're like alligators as, as movies and they're, mm-hmm. you know, super scary. But when you're in a boat and there's alligators coming along, they're like dogs. They're, they're yep. literally just inquisitive. They were playing with the guy. The guy had a stick and he'd like tap the water and they would come up. And one of them stole a stick and he was like, oh, hey, bring my stick back. And it came back and brought yeah, it back wow. to him. Like, And you're like, oh, these things are not angry by nature. They're coming up just going, what are you? What are you doing? What's yeah, going exactly. on? And there has to be a first time that you got in the water with a great white shark. The first time I got in was on this recent trip to Salisbury Island, which is off the south coast of Esperance. It's like 20, 30 meter vis, beautiful, clear blue water. And there's just one shark there. It's super inquisitive. And I was like... Can I get in? It wasn't a university gig or anything, so there was no HSC or any of those worries I usually have to deal with. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, look, he seems fine. And um, kind of just jumped in, stood on the ladder, got eye to eye to it, and I got a bunch of those photos um, that he have recently posted and you were sharing yeah. today. And, you know, that was one of the best interactions I've ever had with these sharks. And, and how incredible. big was that? He was three and a half metres. And after that, actually, an interesting thing happened I've never seen before. So the island is just riddled with seals. That's why this place is a hot spot. And this little sea lion pup came out to the boat as well and checked us out and then realized the shark was there and was like, oh, shit. <laughs> and we're like, what's, what's going to happen here? Get the cameras out sort of thing. And it just swam right up to the shark and sat on its tail. Both the shark and the sea lion <laughs> did three laps around our boat. Just, yeah. I guess you're sticking away from the business end, it makes sense. But yeah. yeah, they're used to them as well. And they get that, you know, you can be in the water with them as long as you know where they are. You're yeah. fine. <laughs> a friend of mine was saying he was a um, he was in the Navy and he was training off of uh, Rockingham. There's that mm-hmm. island there. And they were saying, don't worry about sharks at all. Because if one's going to get you, you're never going to know about it anyway. Mm-hmm. It's like the shark that you see is not the problem, as you said before. Yeah. So I suppose in that nature, if they are being inquisitive and things like that, you're not the situation where you're going to get attacked, right? Yeah, I count yourself lucky for having that kind of experience. And, you know, often they do come up to boats and, you know, they can be inquisitive first and then start munching on propellers and the like. But um, again, that's something, you know, with their sensitive electroreception, they could be getting something off of the props, which is why they often go for those. If it's just kind of swimming around the boat, kind of having a look like these ones have that I've seen in the past, you know, they're pretty safe. And that seems to be the thing is like a lot of people that have had interactions with them are like, you need to see what this is like. Because even thinking about that, like that takes me back to a video that someone shot off the coast of Ocean Reef and they put the GoPro on the stick down into the water and there's this murky footage of this great white shark just chilling under the surface and they put ominous music and like make it really scary it's like he was stalking this boat. Like, yes, because Channel 7 pays a lot for that kind of footage. Yeah. Backing. <laughs> there's a lot of 
stories you hear where they've made a few passes before they've gone for someone and you know you don't want to be in that situation it's not fun and i don't condone jumping in the water whenever you see these animals whatsoever i should state but um yeah it's kind of just reading the room i suppose having experience with them and having studied them and things like that you would be able to read the room more so than me i suppose so but then it goes too far as well where these people are you know out swimming with them every day jumping on the dorsal fin and you know they're doing it for education and the like and they're really just encouraging people to go out and do the same for their Insta likes. I've got a question, actually. Mm-hmm. This is from my friend Ben Snell. Does tagging great white sharks make them handicapped in the sense that they're unable to hunt properly because their normal prey is alarmed by the sound? Does this sound also aggravate the shark? And does this in turn make them more likely to hunt outside of their usual diet? Are there less shark attacks in places where you don't tag? Really good question. I mean, a few questions there. So he's talking about acoustic tags there. So what those are, they're implanted. They're not stuck on the fin. And they used to be like there's these old tags from the 80s and 90s. They bolted them into the fins and it really affected their kind of... Because they use that to steer and it really affects their water dynamics and all the rest. So yes, that would have an effect on how they how they predate. The frequency of the acoustic tags is so high that it's well beyond the range of hearing of any marine mammal, um, perhaps maybe whales, I should say. But... um. Acoustic tags shouldn't have any effect in that regard. There's other tags that have been phased out that definitely did. The technology of the day was these really sluggish satellites that use these low frequencies or, you know, medium level frequencies that, you know, would have been within the range of hearing of marine animals. But nowadays they're super high frequencies, so they're pretty much undetectable. And a lot of the tag technology these days, they're all designed to kind of pop off after a certain time. Putting a camera on a shark's dorsal fin is pretty bulky and it would affect. So, like, they do it to look at how they predate on animals and the like, but they don't know whether that's preventing them from having successful predations. Um, And so they're trying to tease that out. But, yeah, the newer tags are designed to pop off after a certain period of time, so there's no, like, long-term impact on the animal. And that sort of tagging and stuff, that's to get information on their migration and to research these animals and find out more about them. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, there's long-term migration patterns, which are through satellite tags or acoustic tags. And then you get into fine scale movement patterns where you're trying to figure out what it is that's driving them to, you know, come in closer to the coast. Camera tags are short term for sort of figuring out why they're hanging out in a certain area like the White Shark Cafe and what they're doing there. And then there's really, really fine scale, like accelerometer tags, they call it now, which measure their movement in three dimensions. And so they're using that to figure out their fine scale behaviors as well. We're doing some of that out here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, There's been quite a few studies recently, perhaps not so many on white sharks yet out here, but I know some guys at Murdoch that have been using the camera tags on whites in Western Australia. Mm -hmm. And a lot has been done on sort of tiger sharks up north at Ningaloo. The age old question with this stuff is, how much funding is willing to be put to academia to figure this stuff out. There's two sides to the data argument. It's yes, we don't know that much, but academia can't sit there forever saying we don't know enough and we need more funding as well. So a lot of the kind of companies I've worked for have been in the private sector where they've gone, well, government and you know universities aren't solving this problem, so we're going to have a crack at it. And they get investor funding or get some money behind them and most of them fail. But um, you know, it's good to see someone out there trying to have a crack and you know fill the data gaps, I guess. Because it's not always, you know, university that's going to do that or government. So when they go into doing things, obviously there's the big contentious thing that they did here and then they abandoned, which was the drum lines. Yeah. Obviously, huge failure. They were standing by the fact that it was a um, test, right? So the wording is... 
they don't see it as a failure, but they learnt that they can't target white sharks with them. Yep. So they caught two white sharks in three years at a cost of $3.8 million to taxpayers. It's pretty basic technology that kind big of... Big hook, big yeah. bait. Well, they <laughs> killed GPS they killed tag on the top that says, hey, come and look at this. The WA trial, they didn't... Uh, they might have had one fatality, but I don't oh, think right. they really had many. But over east, they've been doing this trial on a much longer term. So for whatever reason, they decided they need to do it here as well. Over east, there's been a lot more fatalities. And over east, they were a failure because they tended to have the opposite effect of what they were hoping. So they would tag these whites and skull drag them a kilometre out to sea. And then they would pretty much, the tag would show that they've returned to the exact same area where they tagged them and hung around even closer to where the bait was. Wow. <laughs> what a surprise. That's a hot take that's not clearly shown in the paper that they published. But, yeah. Um, yeah. I think a lot of stuff these days, especially with, with media in, in a lot of things, and we end up discussing these sorts of topics a lot, is like fear and contentious subjects sell. Absolutely. So they want to make sharks the scariest thing in the world. Every opinion has to be completely binary. It needs to be like, I love sharks or sharks are evil. We kill them all. Yeah, polarization. So yeah. it's like, as you're saying, like to be able to actually study these things and learn more about them so you can make educated decisions on these things is obviously the best way forward. Yeah, I've realized I've got to spend less time arguing with people that are wrong <laughs> on the internet and more time just doing the work. <laughs> yeah, fully. While we're talking about really educated decisions, I do have a really good question from Aaron Weber. Sure. Um, he has uh, penned this and uh, I felt like it needed addressing. Is the level of emphasis on the words get fucked a scientifically recognized unit of G-dub measurement? Yes. <laughs> That's what I thought too. Yeah, so there you go, Aaron. There's your answer. Correct. Get fucked is indeed numerical measurement technique. Yeah, once they reach a certain size, it's pretty all much right. all you have left to say. <laughs> <laughs> With... um. What was his name, the surfer? Which one? The one that, that punched the shark in the face. Oh, Mick Fanning. Yeah. Was that a great white? Yeah, that definitely I was. I think <laughs> it was, yeah. I think it was. I so was, that was probably being quite inquisitive or do you think it was actually going to... Yeah, he had a go at him. Like, it was pretty serious. Um, I was actually there on the beach in J-Bay that year, funnily wow. enough. Wow. It was pretty dramatic. It was the biggest coverage they've ever had. And I was working for this company for many years. We were developing and testing this sonar-based shark detection system that we had out there, which is basically like a virtual net where if a big shark comes through, this AI algorithm kind of picks it up and lets the beach know. And so then this happened. We're like, fuck, yeah, this is great data. We're going to be able to sell the product off this and, you know, develop it and get it commercialized. And it didn't really work out in the end. But, um, yeah, it was pretty full on. Like that thing had a go at him. He full on punched it in the face and like... It's like the best shark interaction story I've seen thus far. Yeah. Like, I'm surprised he was still surfing. That shit would change you for sure. Oh, man, 100%. Sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. You hear these other stories like the Rodney Fox character, you know, nearly died and had his whole torso munched and now he's spent, you know, the past 50 years, you know, changing the public's mind about sharks. Um, yeah, it can go either way. I think the opinion of people that have been attacked or have lost people to attacks, they're completely allowed to have that opinion. Absolutely. You know and it's, it's amazing to me that most of them are actually pro-conservation. And definitely there is valid arguments for management and figuring out strategies moving forward, you know, for people who have lost loved love ones and the rest. But it's remarkable how many survivors are actually pro-conservation of the animals after their, after their attack. They have more of a reason to have that opinion than me or anyone else. Yeah, absolutely. So do you think we should fear them? Um, as far as being, if you live in Perth and you go to the beach, you surf a bit, 
you jump off a boat at Rottnest every now and then. Is it a logical fear to have? It's logical. It's very instinctual. Yeah, it's definitely ingrained in us. Um, and I've met many people that say, oh, just, I, I won't go diving in Perth or I won't go to the beach in Perth and they're crippled by this fear. And I speak to them and say, look, sure, there has been an attack or two in knee-deep water, but the likelihood of that is so low. And uh, there's definitely times of the year where I wouldn't go diving at Rottnest or on the coast. Sharky weather, overcast. Well, it's, it's, it's said that stand. from the research yeah. I was doing, it was saying that it was like almost all the attacks were in like, was it October, November? Uh, a lot of them are in April. So there's kind of, there's a couple of different spikes in activity. There's the whale migrations. Um, then there's the salmon season when the salmon are running in April. And then there's other like snapper run later in the year and October, November as well. So it's around where the, you know, big prey events where they're chasing prey that it often happens. And what's shipped me years and years on end with the media is they always go for the front page fear mongering article, but they never get out any education about if you just avoid swimming at this time of year when this is happening or keep an eye on this for alerts then you will know not to go swimming during salmon season or when it's very cold water and overcast and these kind of situations and that could have a remarkable effect so what about the crocodiles you were talking about them before as well what are you doing uh in relation to those so the um the sonar detection system i mentioned earlier that we developed for sharks um that company went public and used a whole bunch of investors money um we d- developed it to the point of commercialization, but it was it just ended up being too expensive, um, the sonars itself. So it kind of tanked and another company bought them out and is now doing something completely different. But we managed to wrangle out a bunch of the technology in the software that is used to detect these large fauna. And some like we, we know kind of the hardware and the rest that we were using to set it up. And so we had the Queensland government reached out to us kind of right towards the end of the company and we did a trip with them because they were one, they were having, you know, there's a lot more croc attacks up the uh, north coast of Queensland at the moment and a lot more of a management concern around that as well. And so they're looking for new and interesting ideas to figure out how they can manage, you know, this growing crocodile population. And so they came out to Perth and they had a meeting with us and said, look, we, we wanted to do a crocodile deterrent but then we realized we needed to detect them first in order to deter them. So we want to speak to you and work with you and get this set up. And so we did one trip with them before that company folded. And then that sort of all, yeah, we, we got fired, I guess, and nothing happened for a while. But um, my old colleague and I, we managed to set up a you know separate entity and continue the relationship with the Queensland government and set up this uh, collaborative research project where they've been funding trials of you know, a newly, a newly developed set of software to detect crocodiles instead of sharks. And so, yeah, kind of just naturally spurred out of there. And for the past two years, we've been going to Cairns sort of once or twice a year to do these field trials. And it works so much better with crocodiles than sharks. Mm. That crocodiles are just designed, I'm uh, sorry, sharks are just designed to be camouflaged as fuck because they're like one main predator is orcas that use echolocation and acoustics to, to find them. And so their whole body is designed to minimize acoustic reflections so that means finding them with sonar is pretty difficult for crocodiles they've got these massive lungs they hold their breath for two hours or whatever and they just light up like a christmas tree right. and they've got this awesome like swimming tail pattern that is just it's so clear and easy to see so that's been a really good project and it's worked really well in comparison to the sharks first i was laughing about queensland being super fucked it's probably the only place on earth you get bitten by a shark and a crocodile 
On the same swim. <laughs> and you would more than likely find that the crocodile was eating the shark on the way to you. <laughs> so the, the, in, the, in the predatory ladder, you think that the crocodiles are... Crocodiles are truly scary. <laughs> I don't you're find jumping in the water scary, with, Yeah, you're not jumping in the water. Crocodiles with. have like no respect for humans whatsoever. And they're inquisitive. They're highly intelligent. But if they're bigger than you... You're they pretty them. much want to eat you. Holy <laughs> yeah. shit. They're, they're very scary. So your pre-warning system for detecting crocodiles, like how does it actually work in the field? Like where, what's its uh, use case? So the use case is, and again, it works so much better for crocs than trying to protect an entire beach with these sonars because they kind of come up these, um, these small river systems and they want to bottleneck it near swimming holes and the like in northeast Queensland. Um, and so if we kind of put two sonars across a bank, which is no more than 20 metres across, that fits really well within the limitations of the sonar. And so we can know everything that's coming in and out. And if if there's anything that's going in towards a watering hole where people go swimming, mm-hmm. it can send an alert through. Uh, yeah, that's a really good idea. I suppose it's, it's probably somewhat individual in the sense that you are able to bottleneck it and manage that one yeah. egress, ingress point. Yeah. Um, a lot more difficult, I suppose, out in the... And the ocean. And the crocodiles also can and do travel on land though, right? Very slowly. Well, actually, they have bursts of high speed where you wouldn't want to be caught with one. But um, they do travel on land. They also motor up and down the beach as well. A lot of the swimming beaches in Cairns where they've got the net for the Irukandji and that, they sometimes get a, a salty just motoring up and down there as well, just adding insult to injury of <laughs> not being able to swim in Queensland. Prehistoric killing machine. Yeah. Yeah, don't forget the jellyfish you just mentioned as well. So you get stung by a jellyfish, die, then get eaten by a shark who then gets eaten by a crocodile all on the one swim. Well, that's, that's the it. one thing that it, every international friend of mine asked me is like, um, it's this, the most dangerous place on earth, right? There's more things that can kill you. I'm like, I'm pretty sure if you just hang out in like the Northern Territory or like far North Queensland, <laughs> that's probably true. Yeah. Just as soon as you cross the border, yeah. bit, bit my snake or something. And that's where Crocodile Dundee was based. So I guess yeah. I get where the stereotype <laughs> comes from. And I'll never forget being at the beach in Queensland for the first time. There's sort of warning signs they have up for the crocs and the sharks and the jellyfish. And they list all these symptoms if you've been stung. And like number one on the top of the list was a sense of impending doom. (laughs) (laughs) I wake up every day with that. (laughs) Jellyfish depression. (laughs) (laughs) To go back to your question about um, crocs on land, so... A lot of the swimming holes in that is pretty far upstream where in the dry season, you know, you'd have to clamber up a whole bunch of rocks to get to it. So it's pretty effective of keeping the crocs out. But, you know, when the shoulder seasons of the wet come in and it gets more accessible to them, they want to put this stuff in and check that nothing's going rogue and getting into these swimming holes. So how did you get into this? Because I met you probably 15 years ago. long time ago. Yeah. 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 For those that don't know, Colby's a really good drummer. And he played Thanks. in a bunch of hardcore bands. And that's, I met you because I was doing merch, I think, for, I was designing merch for one of your bands, I'm pretty yeah, sure. Yeah, something like that. And then we had, you know, a little foray and endeavor into a couple of gigs we promoted together. Yeah, it was yeah. probably the worst performing gig you ever did. Yeah, I think we did one that didn't even land. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We had, it was, what was it? Cold World and Rotting Out. Yeah, yeah. Rotting I found Out the files just never came. Yeah. 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 So you were doing that sort of stuff. And then huge left turn, as far as I was concerned, yeah, into sure. conservation and working with sharks. And, I think we were going to put on a gig or something and you were like, I might be going to South Africa. Yeah, I remember going to your house, sitting with you and Delby once and we were talking about a gig and I was like, oh, yeah, if it's in January, I can't come because I'm going to be in South Africa in a shark cage. Yeah, yeah, that was it. And we were just like, okay, that's not what we were anticipating. Yeah. 
Yeah, a bit of a wild card, I guess. But um, And that's why I'm a nearly 30-year-old graduate, by the way, is because I've had these two passions that I've been trying to wrangle with for far too long. <laughs> I always wanted to be a marine scientist from you know my early childhood days. And one day I decided to do it. And I finished a TAFE course in music business and then went straight into uni and spent, I think, five years doing a three-year degree and booking my gigs and playing in a band and touring and doing all the rest around that. So, yeah, it took a fair while to um, sort of get so, sort of rooted in, in the area that I was trying to, you know, get into. And it's a really difficult field as well. They don't really offer straight biology and I just wanted to do sharks, but it wasn't available. So, I pretty much just started finding every opportunity I could get to go and see these things and get experience. And that South Africa trip, I just found a volunteer opportunity off my own back and went out and got the uni to give me a scholarship to go and do it and kind of just kept with that gung-ho attitude of, you know, it's never going to come to me unless you knock on the door and force your way in and keep at it. Yeah, I was stuck for a few years between, you know, the sort of party age and playing <laughs> in bands and studying part-time and eventually, you know, it started to roll over into, yeah, where I want to be now and, yeah, I'm still playing in bands and stuff and love that, but, yeah, there's a lot of hobbies to sort of deal with <laughs> as you get older. That's sick, though, because I think that kind of DIY attitude as well, just not sitting there going, oh, I'm going to study this thing and there's no jobs here. It's like, nah, the world is completely open you can just go and do whatever you want getting a scholarship to go and do that sort of thing is never just going to come to you here right that's right you got to seize it and yeah it was like i kind of shot myself a bit in how long i took to get it done because we hit a major bust in wa and there was no jobs no matter how hard i tried pretty much just started going overseas and looking for opportunities elsewhere to make it happen and i suppose that gives you more and more education and it also gives you more and more stripes right so that people yeah. will actually be like yeah we'll come on board because you've seen this and you've done this and you've got experience and you can bring something to the table yeah it's definitely you know adding to the life experience doing cool things but yeah there's definitely an element of fake it till you make it as well you we just keep going out and doing these things and saying well i'm not going to become this overnight i'm going to keep doing it until it happens yeah. basically but that's that diy attitude and like that resonates with me and resonates with a huge amount of people that i've been around especially come from like the hardcore scene or come from independent bands have gone on to do things that do require you to actually do a little bit of the fake it till you make yeah. it but also just get the experience and learn and then make your decisions based on that i give so much credit to the hardcore scene you know when you're young you know it's, it's a really inspiring kind of place to be in you know the punk scene and you know everything's exciting you're angsty about stuff and you you want things to change and it definitely inspires people to put in that perspiration to get to the things that they want in life there's so many friends of mine that are, have come up from that as well i'm so thankful to you know have discovered punk when i was 14 or whatever and get into this scene where there's people just wanting to do things that they want to do and not accepting the norm it's, yeah and that's awesome. that's exactly it it's just so interesting to speak to someone who's done that in the science world you know because i've done it in the design things yep. or putting on events and things like that and sort of yep. carving your own path and change the things that you don't like and create the things that you do want and yep. the way that you want to see the world but for, for you to be able to do that in the sense of conservation and stuff it's not an avenue which i've met people before that have gone from that what I love the most is, you know, our wider friend group and people we know, they all do such different things. And it could be, you know, any aspect of life that, you know, has excited someone from an early age and they just go off and do it. And, yeah, I think that early ethos of punk gives them the, the tools and the desire to go out and get it. And, it's yeah, it's just awesome to see. 
I do like that mindset though, like be the person that you want to be and do the things that you think that those people would do. And then by doing that, you end up becoming the person that you want to be, you know? Yeah, so for in your sure. situation, you're like, fuck it, I'm going to be a marine scientist. And yeah. you went out and did marine science shit until you sit here talking to us about marine science. <laughs> and there's a lot of people that will study things and then be like, oh, there's no yeah. jobs for that. I, th- I remember that when I was started doing design and I kind of fell into design as a way to do a job so that I could play in bands and yeah. I, I could take time off. It was just something that paid me money and it ended up being something that I gravitated towards more and more. Yeah. But I went and spoke at this thing called AG Ideas in Melbourne, which is like a massive design conference. I got invited to speak there years ago, like 2011. It occurred to me that everyone that was there, there's just all these kids there and students and all of them were just like, how do you do this? How do you get work? And, and it's not an easy question to answer. Yeah. And it was just like, man, you need to just hustle any fucking way you can, like yeah. any way you can do business cards for your dad's best mates, lawn mowing business. And then they might know someone that has a bigger business. And then like for me, one of the biggest things was I did some stuff for a kid that was in a band and his dad owned a winery. And then I designed like a rebrand for a winery and stuff like that. You just need to find a way in. It's just networking at the end of the day. Yeah. Reach, no matter how small your circle is, you, you just can keep growing it as long as you keep trying and keep knocking on doors and keep speaking to people. And, you know, if you're passionate about it, don't hold back. So many people are scared of showing their work or speaking out, saying they're wanting to do something or launching that project. And it really is just fucking do it. Doing it's, it is the first step for everything. Like, yeah. I don't think that there would be any point in your life where you would have gone, I can see an opportunity here to go to South Africa and do this. That's obviously number one. And then you're like, okay, I can request a scholarship here. You can see which ways can go. There was no part of that was going to be a negative to your life. Yeah, absolutely. Because at absolute worst, it was an experience. Yeah. And at worst, they said no. Exactly. you find something else. And it shows that you actually have the mindset to actually put yourself out there and do something. And people respond to that so much better in all fields. People apply for jobs with me all the time now. And I'll get emails going, you know, this is my cover letter. My Canva resume. Yeah, this is my resume and this is my portfolio. And it's like, I don't care. <laughs> like, I don't care at all. If someone came and knocked on the door and said, I love this, this and this and I want to do that and I will come in here and I'll show me how to do it. I'd be like, absolutely. And, and people have done that. I've had friends that have done that that are now like completely working creative people. But... It's almost a personality trait. It's like a, it's, it's something within you outside of what you choose to do. It's something where you're like, no, I'm, I'm going to do it any way that I can. Yeah. And that gives you the power to take that extra 1% of a step to bring you that more proximal to failure to go rather than just send a resume and see if I get a yes or no that I can ignore. I'm going to come up to the door and face failure right in the face and see what happens. And that's sometimes all it takes. The number of times that I put myself out there to try and get ahead and I've been slapped back. There's only a couple I can remember, eh? Nina Las Vegas fucking did it. (laughs) (laughs) How so? Man, I went to... um, Fuck it, I'll just tell the story because I'm I'm trying to protect people. (laughs) (laughs) Hot take. Fuck that. Hot take. So she was running the Triple J, like, whatever show. The the one that I wanted to get, like, a mix-up on or something. So I put together, like, a 45-minute mixtape and then I hit up Reggie Taku and I was like, yo, I'm, tr- I'm trying to get on Mixup. And he goes, oh man, I'll just put in touch with Nina. He just emails me in with her. Hey Nina, this is Scott, does Lost in, da-da-da. The cosign. 
And she hits me back and she's like, oh, hey, great. Um, I'll be in touch. I'm on tour. I'm busy. Or there was something going on. I was like, cool. So I hit her back again and there was no response. And I was like, okay, well, you need to just keep pushing, right? Because that's what you, that's what you want to do. So I was like, yo, I've done a mixtape for MixUp if you want to use it. And I thought that was quite proactive. Mm, yeah, you really put yourself out. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. it's just one of those things. Like I was making music. Yeah. I was, you want to share it with the world. I was like, I want, I want to get a mix-up thing. So why wouldn't you pre-organize what you're going to do anyway, right? Yeah. That's what people do. And she, um, she, <laughs> she like hit me back and was like, yo, like, please don't do that. Like she was like, oh, like no, making you right, like you're a stan. Yeah, like, like, yeah, for real. So I must start. Maybe she was having a bad day or whatever. But my, I remember just being like, whoa. Like I just got like, like she like slapped me back and was like, um, yeah, like I wish you didn't do that because it makes me feel really bad or something. And I was like, this isn't about your feelings. Yeah, also respond to an email or no. She seems lovely and it fit, it, the whole thing fit in, but it was just one of those things. It was one of the only times I can think of in my life where I'd like, put myself out there and someone had just been like dumpstered boom no and i was like oh shit i didn't expect that you know mm. because most of the time when you do go and put yourself out there like i'm not talking about like standing outside the girl you like's house with like a radio above your head or anything <laughs> but when you are like i want to do this and i'm going to be proactive about it and a non-entitled and actually be willing to put in the work the hard yards it generally works out and that's generally my yeah. advice to people yeah. but and just it, not if you're trying to get <laughs> on triple J. yeah and it does it does suck when you do get knocked back and it does take a hit to you know well i'm trying to be really good at this and this is a sign that it hasn't worked out you get a bit of that little jellyfish depression come in yeah. for a minute but you just get back on the horse and knock on the next door and you know i can't count the amount of times that i got told no and i just went oh well this is just the state of you know the the field at the moment and if i keep trying it'll come good in the end and figure it out you kind of get that invested into something that you're like well i can't turn back now yeah it's like i can't do anything else i've already come too far along when you were doing that stuff when you were like getting along the path to to sort of you're like i want to work with sharks i want to do this was there people going Man, you should probably just get a fucking job. <laughs> oh, definitely. But I, I, I've only had one full-time job in my life and I don't, I don't really settle for that shit. Like I'm not financially kind of driven. Well, maybe more as I get older. But um, at that point, you know, it's just about doing cool shit and achieving those dreams. It doesn't matter how it comes by. Mm. And yeah, you know, there's definitely a bit of stubbornness in my personality as well that doesn't really take no for an answer and take being told that you shouldn't do something and you should focus on a normal commerce degree or something instead um yeah so that definitely resonated through and again that started with hardcore i remember you know learning drums when i was 15 16 or whatever and deciding that was you know the path i wanted to follow and mum telling you that you're never going to make it just give up and focus on something else and i still to remember to this day um when we got offered our first Europe tour, calling mum up and saying, you know that time you said we weren't going to make it? Mm. And we never made it. Like <laughs> yeah. We just did this shitty tour and, you know, German pubs to three people and a dog. But at that point, I thought I'd made it. And yeah. Well, that's yeah. the thing is I think when you start playing drums, you're like, man, if I could tour Europe from Perth, that would be making it, right? Yeah. For but the sure. goalposts move every time. Yeah. And you've got to keep forward. letting that goalpost move and strive for bigger and better things. <laughs> That's it. Whenever I was growing up, any of the kids that played drums were always the naughty kids. <laughs> Is that true in your case? Uh, I was half and half. Okay. I definitely had a bit of a split personality thing going on in high school. I didn't give a shit and was a reckless idiot up until about year 11. Then realized I wanted to 
you know, go to university and study shark. So I started being good at TE and stuff. But then I ended up getting expelled on muck-up day. So, <laughs> yeah, a bit of both. <laughs> what did you get expelled for? Yeah, funny story. Um, I had I'd plotted up all these plans to, you know, buy bantam chickens off Gumtree and release <laughs> them in classrooms and do all this stupid stuff. And then, like... I talked about it too much and the teachers started catching wind and going, oh, you better not do that. If anyone in this class is thinking of doing bad shit, you know, it's going to come down hard on you. And so I was hesitant. And in the end, I um, went to Kmart. This is so funny. It's like a pivotal point in my career moving thus forward. But I bought a bottle of fish oil and went to school on muck-up day and put fish oil on all of the teacher's office doorknobs. And it just turns out that the uh, cooking teacher, who was a total bitch, by the way, ever, surely not allergic. What school? Was highly allergic oh, to fish. No, no. shit. <laughs> she had anaphylaxis. Um, <laughs> I hear it wasn't life-threatening, you but she did her. did make an entry to hospital, and I made a swift exit out of the school. Wow. <laughs> was this post T? So you'd finished your exam? So I had to go to some bottom of the barrel kind of like um, Chewick, canning, Chewick college, canning yeah. college yeah. next to Curtin University and mm-hmm. go do my exams there. And I had, wow. I had you had to do the school exams before the TE exams and they just put me in the principal's assistant's office to do it. And it's like, no one's even checking on me. I've got my books in my bag. <laughs> like I could totally cheat right now on my physics exam that I haven't studied for all year. But um, yeah, it, it all worked out in the end. <laughs> it didn't impact you because I feel like it would have sucked, man. Like at the very last bit to be ripped away from all your friends doing it in that big hall, even though you can't talk. But you're like, here all there. And then you well, go. Sit- the, sc- the school year's done, right? Yeah, yeah, but you know, it's the last thing. And you do it with all your friends. And then you leave and like everyone's don't fuck off to the beach. This dude's got to go sit in Canning College by himself. Like, on the- <laughs> and, like, did that fuck with you when you were trying to go do your TA? It really did. And I was at the height of my hardcore <laughs> angst at the oh, time. Right. And, and it was just the graduation that I missed. And uh, yeah, I didn't really care. And I, mem- I do remember getting the bus. Like I had to figure out three buses or something to get to Canning College. And I'd listen to break even the whole way, just <laughs> swearing at the world <laughs> and being angry. But it kind of fed fed the fire in a good way. I think. Dude, the scene points for, for expulsion on like the technically the last day of the last school. Day of school that's like, sick. Oh, big like, threat. Yeah. I'm so scared. <laughs> I think you earn a tattoo for that, don't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, for yeah. real. It's so funny, man, because you're always like, you're a real nice guy. Like I always remember like you were the nice kid in that hardcore scene and there was people that were like super angsty. You could tell there was a lot of people that had like really bad time growing up and stuff, but you seemed to be just like a well-adjusted, like nice kid. You didn't seem to be like an angry, a super angry kid. You were like, maybe channeling that in, in playing drums and stuff like that. That's so sick, though, that, you, that your prank went from being chickens to shitty fish oil. And the fish oil was way more detrimental. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Yeah, it's funny how that all works out. That's Couldn't have expected so that. Unlucky. I had to go to... Um, I failed my English to you. I, I kind of cooked it. I, I didn't know what I wanted to do in school at all. I was obviously ADD as fuck, so, like, studying was terrible. I didn't really understand that. So I was just like, if you just sit here and read these things and my attention was just everywhere all the time, which was cool because I was like creative. So it was was interesting to me, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. So doing TE, I did because you're better off doing it than not. More chances to figure it out later. I knew I wanted to do something. I just didn't know what it was yet. I think I started like seeing a girl or something and she like messed me around and I just got like super emo heartbroken over that and like threw caution to the wind and ended up failing my english exam like my ter was like average but it was fine 
but I couldn't get into university without resitting my English. So they make you do the stat test. Mm-hmm. It was just like, basically, can you read? Can you write? Can you construct sentences? And it was just a pass fail because the only thing that you couldn't get into university with, like you could have a TR score of whatever, but if you failed English, you, can't, you couldn't go to university. So I ended up doing that. <laughs> when well, there's a will, there's a way. That's it. So circling back onto your um, marine career, um, everyone that spoke to me online prior to this has, has asked, like, what's the, have you had any sketchy experiences that you can tell us about? Not necessarily like life-threatening, but maybe situations that um, might have been a little bit. Hey, can we go? I'm, I, I want to go here and I want to get back to the sharks completely. Oh, okay. But you're the sketchiest person that I know. I'm sketchy. You definitely, <laughs> as far as like most of my friends, you're the only one who's been to jail in Japan. You've definitely got way more stories than anyone. Yeah. Did you, were, you, did you, were you bad in high school? Was I bad in high school? Nah, the complete opposite. I got one detention. Because you're like, you got, you had tattoos and all, you like, when I, got, I met you, you were like the sketchy guy that had been glassed <laughs> and you had like two sleeve tattoos. So were you bad at school? Scott was the definition of reading, uh, judging a book by its color. <laughs> he just saw me with a scowl on my face and a shaved head and all of a sudden I was the guy from fucking. No, yeah. I thought that you were the ex-boyfriend of the girl yeah, I was sleeping yeah, with yeah. when I met you. Romper stomper. <laughs> she'd been like, oh, he comes to Dorsey and I was like, <laughs> yeah. that's him. <laughs> And I was just looking at you going, oh, that's Scott. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My worlds collide. You had a shaved head though and you would look sort of angry. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was really good in high school, man. I was like super, super well behaved. Uh, I had one detention the entire time I was there and I went to Wesley, like all boys school, super strict anyway. So I didn't really have a chance to fuck around. But I was I was super conscious of the fact that my dad had spent like $40,000 to send me there. <laughs> and because I come from samson i was like i I was cognizant of the fact that he'd like remortgage his house to pay for my school so i was like i can't fuck around i got like straight and narrow but i did get one detention and it was for the dumbest shit actually no i do tell a lie me and a guy called colin whose last name will remain nameless (laughs) swagged uh the sports carnival and got hammered on tequila that we'd stolen out of his dad's cupboard we got fucked up drunk and then went back, took a bunch of beers to the school, and I got caught walking up to the school gate by the principal, <laughs> who was a guy called John Bednell, and he terrified the fuck out of me. Turned out later that John Bednell got caught looking at pedo shit on the internet, <laughs> so there was a justification as to why that guy creeped me out. But he did catch me, and he gave me this ultimatum. He's like, Josh, come to my office Monday morning. I was like, fuck me. That, this was the scariest sentence that anyone fingered. could utter. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know it was a pain on this stage, but I was preparing. You were going hole. into deeper water than you knew. Yeah. <laughs> Clenching. But I walked in there and I was honestly underwhelmed. I think he must have been having a busy morning because he'd forgotten that I was coming. And he looked at me and he goes, did you sell any beers to the younger kids? And I was like, no, I didn't sell any beers. I drank them. And he said, all right, you got this option. Either I tell your parents or you tell your parents and show me that you have some responsibility and maturity. I was like, I do, sir. Mm-hmm. I will tell my parents. They might be finding out now. That's crazy. <laughs> you never told them. No fucking way. Hey, mom, I got caught drinking at school. I assume that you'd be like smoking weed at school. And no. I don't know why. I smoked weed once in high school. It was like year 10 with a guy called Adam and we were in Rotnest 
and I hallucinated that I thought I saw the um, vice captain of the school and uh, thought that was hilarious and then went back and he looked at me weird and I realised that I did actually see him. (laughs) 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 I don't know what I said to him to this day, but I was very, very paranoid at the time, so it couldn't have been good. And I never touched it again until I was like 22. This is crazy because you were just like this nice clean-cut kid that got expelled for trying to kill a teacher with anaphylactic shock. It's murder. Yeah. Mm. With with the fish oil that I use to chum for sharks these days. (laughs) All right, let's roll back to the sharks. I was just sorry. I was was genuinely interested. Yeah. Well, there you go. stories. So, you never told your parents? No. assuming that responsibility. Fuck no, never told them. And and again, why would you? You get given the opportunity. I was actually worried that the headmaster was like going to ring them and be like, has Josh had a talk to you? And they'd be like, no, why are you ringing me, Mr. Bednall? I thought you were in jail for kitty porn. <laughs> what a shock. <laughs> so many teachers. I know. It's like every school has that teacher story. Hard. We did have some really hot mums. We did like a play. It was Don Quixote and like the fucking, what, what's that? The Conquistadors. What's that story called with the windmill and Don Quixote? I do know what it is. Yeah. But I can't think. I've never heard of it. No? Oh, you, Not as cultured as I thought. I, yes. Yeah, I think you would know it if you heard it. But anyway, one of the kids that was in the play, his mum was super hot and she was like the school MILF. And I signed up as like a year 11 to do backstage shit purely because there was a MILF working there. See, that's funny because my mum was the school MILF. Oh. <laughs> and I know how Respect. it feels. Like yeah. Respect. <laughs> was your mum young? Yeah, she was 21 when she had me. Wow. So very young and, yeah, used to rock up to school in this old Mercedes and mid 30s. And you would have been, yeah. I remember her 10s. 30th. I was eight. Wow. Um, I remember, vividly remember watching her funnel a beer on our back garden and not knowing what a funnel was and why she was drinking so fast god bless respect. her respect god bless her what's she doing now she's, she's a good woman she's a you know strong independent ceo of wa softball league oh. <laughs> i personally really support women's softball my mum was an avid softballer for many years you were an avid softballer well i did actually get into softball in the in the baseball off season i found like a little social group of men who played like, <laughs> like Mr. Bedford. Oh, keep going down that just keep going down that route. <laughs> I can't even keep this. I found a little social group of men. Hey, let's just keep going. Are you talking let's about going, going to the pub? Yeah. <laughs> I can't even. Oh, it's called slow pitch softball as well. <laughs> <laughs> you defended it as well. I asked you to do stuff and you'd be like, I'm playing softball. <laughs> You know why, man? It was so fun because you just get to like, you literally just get to smash the fuck out of this ball. Because if you like threw it too fast, you get in trouble. <laughs> so you kind of got to be fair with it. But um, you can smash this ball so far. And it was super competitive. Hey, I was very surprised. A, a group of fat middle-aged men. And I was obviously the most athletic in the entire fucking team. This was only a few years ago. This was not a long time ago. No, this was probably five years ago. Yeah. It's not that long. <laughs> I was rounding bases, bro. High knees. <laughs> oh, I'm so into it. Oh, dude. It was actually pretty sick. Oh, that's the first time I've cried last <laughs> <laughs> only lasted two seasons, though, because um, it was too far to go. Willerton, you know? Sad, if, anyone's doing, if anyone's doing slow pitch around Scarborough area, let me know. I'm fucking pretty down. i got a 300 batting average. <laughs> Looking you for a fresh be. group of social men. 
Are you a social worker? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Fuck me. Sharks. <sighs> sharks. People are just like, man, I want to hear about sharks. We're just like tension to I know. Um, fucking sketchy situations. Surely you've got something. Did you yeah. di- your dive tank mm-hmm. run out of air once? Doesn't even have to be shark related. Do one of them fuck with like come up like it was gonna bite you and be like, eh. <laughs> oh, I did. <laughs> I did once have a shark eat my GoPro. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was diving in South Africa and I had this GoPro on a pole that I'd um decided to take out and you know we're doing a shark dive and I'd never done one of these before and my girlfriend had come out to visit um and first day of our holiday in South Africa was we're doing a dive with 40 to 80 sharks without a cage and she's like okay cool 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 let's do this um and so we went out and they're just black tips so they were kind of big you know up to two meters or so and these aren't great whites not great whites no but um they kind of give you the dive briefing in the morning and they say look there's potential to get tigers and bulls and they're pretty cool but just you know keep an eye on this and that on the bottom and if if you kind of notice a tiger brushing up against you and kind of pushing you out of the group, then maybe, you know, just like pay attention to that because that's a clear sign that they're um, picking out the weak targets. But um, we didn't see any, much to my dismay, I really wanted to. But <laughs> it was just, um, yeah, it was still mayhem because so basically you dive around this small like cage thing where they keep a bunch of bait in and you just kind of sit as a group of eight all around this ball and then 40 to 50 black tip sharks come up and... They just go into a frenzy. But that's what when I really realized that um, regardless of how manic they look, they they really know what they're doing and they're not interested in you whatsoever. They're just interested in the food. So that was really cool. And I perhaps got a bit too confident with my GoPro sticking it in sharks' faces and sure as shit, it swallowed my GoPro whole. <laughs> whole. <laughs> swallowed it whole. I wonder if it passed it. Yeah, so they would have vomited up a few hours later and never to be seen again. It would mm. make awesome footage if you ever recovered it. But yeah, no, it did. Um, it swallowed it whole. You know, as far as um, you know, all the warnings I got about South Africa, and that's the first country I ever went to. I'd never been overseas until I did this trip, and it was like culture shock for sure. And everyone's like, "Don't go there. It's so dangerous." Blah blah blah. And I'd like, whereabouts were you? So the first trip, I flew into Joburg, and I just booked this random hostel in the middle of Joburg. Um, for three nights before I flew down to Mossel Bay where the shark cage diving stuff was on. And I was, you know, speaking to people at uni, I was pretty excited about it. And there was this one girl, Tamsin, and she um, has family in South Africa and she goes, oh, no, <laughs> you can't stay there. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna be there at the same time with my mum and we're visiting our family over there. You can stay with us. And that's just like another goes to show that if you just talk to people, like the opportunities just come your way. And I was so thankful and, you know, ended up in, you know, this um, house in Pretoria, this gated village, which was like a culture shock in and of itself. But, um, you know, I loved that trip. And then I went back and lived there for six months after that in uh, Hermanus, which is near Cape Town. And like, honestly, apart from like one or two times, like I've felt more unsafe most weekends walking around in Northbridge than I ever did in South Africa. And, you know, I was always expecting something hectic to happen aside from this one time that, again, I've never told my parents and I reckon they're going to listen, so I'm not sure about <laughs> Let's go. tell that one. Let's go. You already said your mum was hot. Yes. <laughs> 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 the 
It's the grandparents I'm worried about. <laughs> it's too late now. Oh, you can. It's that ask for forgiveness. Yeah, not permission. permission. Yeah. Right. Oh, there's many people I haven't told about this, but hey, all right, let's do it. Fucking what give better a shit. platform? Give a shit ASMR. Let's go. <laughs> um, so, like in all of these experiences, I was always traveling alone. You know, there's not many people I could convince to come along on a you know shark trip or whatever, and. I was out there trying to figure it out for myself. So I was always traveling alone, which I really do like. I love it a lot. But um, obviously you get lonely, you look for friends and all the rest. And I'd made some friends in South Africa. And there was this one local guy, Jacques, that I still don't talk to to this day. I think he messages me once every six months or so trying to get back in contact and apologize for what happened. But um, And so I'd made this friend and, you know, we'd go out drinking most weekends and I'd get away from the hectic shit. I was working Monday to Friday in this lab with these very strong, independent um, scientists that were very egotistical and on you all the time to make sure, even though I was a volunteer, I was worked to the bone. But anyway, I digress. Um, Blow off some steam every weekend with this friend, you know, became pretty close. We'd go, he'd link me up with his friends and we'd go to Cape Town for the weekend and go partying and you know seeing all the local sites and it was really good it was having like a tour guide um and i guess it got to a point where you know i hadn't done much psychedelics at this point and i'd never done lsd and like i wanted to but i was kind of always of the ilk that i would wait for it to come to me rather than seek it out and I'd, i'd i'd done um ayahuasca in peru at this point and like didn't Re- like didn't have an amazing experience but knew there was more to seek out and but like knew not to just you know go gung-ho looking for it and you'd end up in bad situations or whatever like i was trying to avoid mm. and so this friend of mine said look all right well you know one time when you're here we'll go we'll go camping we'll do lsd and i was like shit that sounds awesome that sounds great let's go and do that um and eventually you know like a few months later it had happened and he goes yeah yeah i've got the stuff we'll go camping and we'll spend the weekend out of this spot i've scoped out and you know, by this point, I kind of had full trust in this guy as, you know, my local kind of source of knowledge whenever someone spoke Afrikaans or I didn't know what was going on or where to go or if, you know, this certain place was safe or whatever. And so he linked up this spot to go camping and it was like epic. We like set up, we hid this car behind like this bunch of logs to keep it out of sight. And we kind of walked down this hill to this lake and kind of set up a tent there and set up a fire and had this pretty epic trip like watching the kind of clouds fade into different colors and painting watercolors and all that dumb shit you do when you're tripping on lsd (laughs) like it was awesome fun um but in the morning like we kind of woke up and um we could hear this bucky or ute so they call it buckies in south africa is kind of zooming around back and forth and we're like sounds a bit weird like what's going on here and um we could hear them sort of getting closer. They must have found the car or whatever. And so Jacques had said, all right, I'm going to go up and have a look and see what's going on. And so he kind of walks up and I'm kind of just, you know, packing up our shit. Sorry, at this point when you hear this Bucky, what do you expect it could be? What do you think it could be? Like why is that a weird sound? Why should it not be hanging around? Yeah, so like it was a pretty like open field sort of area. It was a farm, mm. and I get like I, and at first I thought it was you know just um, someone tending to the crops or whatever or checking out the fences, but um, it was like quite, it was being driven quite aggressively, and it started to seem a bit odd. Gotcha, and like bandits, something like that. And we're like either we're trespassing or you know someone's kind of spotted us and trying to rob us or something like that. 
And so this guy, Jack, had said, look, yeah, um, they must have spotted the car and thought, you know, that someone's gone and jumped into the lake or, you know, wondering why this car's here. So he's walked up. About five minutes later, two German shepherds come bounding down the hill, followed by two six-foot-seven men sporting M16s on their front come running down the hill. They've got Jack in handcuffs up the top and these dogs come running all through the camp. I'm shitting bricks and these guys with these biggest guns I've ever seen in my life come running up to me, pin me to the ground, cuff me, sort of go, what's going on here? They search the tent and um, we'd... I remember we'd like hit... I'd only done half a tab because I was a bit unsure about it. And so this half tab, I thought I'd hidden it in the watercolour set that we were painting with and um he'd put it in his jacket and so they found this tab and like we all pled innocence and whatever and said oh, he said i thought it was tick which is apparently um south african for meth or something like that and he yeah, acted like he didn't know anything about it but anyway you know we were very heavily arrested and thrown into the back of this bucky and transported off to the uh south african jail shit <laughs> shit how um, long did you spend in there just a few hours luckily um, but we had no idea. It was a Sunday. Um, the detective wasn't in, so we just got thrown into this cell and, like, thank God, we are put in an empty cell because you never know what shit's going to go on in a South yeah. African jail. Yeah. yeah. And I remember just sitting there, like, staring up. They had, like, this mesh sort of caged ceiling and I was still kind of tripping at this point and I could see, like, that was moving and I was <laughs> it all kind of sunk in and I went, fuck. Hanged <laughs> <laughs> up abroad. This guy has fucked us yeah and so we were trespassing on this property it turns out every ounce of land in south africa is owned by someone and yeah i've just never forgiven this guy because he's just so recklessly decided to you know choose this camp on private property to go and sit when people come running down with m16s and they're just the private guards of that farm like wow and they just what they they just sort of give you a scare and then let you go so it was a bit more hectic than that um so, event, like, we'd sat in there for a few hours and, like, nearly got into a punch-up inside the cell because I was so pissed off with him. And eventually, you know, the detective arrived. He had a gold tooth and mostly spoke Afrikaans. So, I was kind of relying on this friend that I was so angry at to translate for me as well. Um, and they they basically threatened to revoke my passport. I was, I think, two month, three months into my six-month stint. And, yeah, I just freaked out at that point and sort of went i knew nothing about this this guy's kind of done this and he like yeah to his credit he took all the blame from the get-go he said look i'm wearing this don't worry about it sort of thing and i just had to put on the drama effect at this point so Mm -hmm. got the waterworks out slamming fists on the table like all that and um they're like well we don't believe your story because you he could just be covering for you it could be your drugs and i was like well it's not my drugs um and eventually after you know an hour or so of interrogation they decided to let me out and um, keep my friend for the night. And so I'd like given him my thermal top that I was wearing and my um, lab manager came and picked me up and I had to do a please explain there. Um, <laughs> Did they think it was funny or were they like... Uh, so they were pretty open to it all. Like I remember like the first night there was like the leaving party for the person I was replacing and, you know, the welcome party for me and we all got pissed and... 
You're like, oh, if you ever want LSD, like I can get it for you. That's like, you know, the lab manager of the company. I was like, yeah, sweet. This is pretty cool. Like, everyone's pretty relaxed about it. They found it funny in the end, which was good. Yeah. They, like they didn't wear me too hard about it and it was all pretty chill. But um, so my friend spent the night and was shipped off to court the next day and put into the, cell, the court cell with all the gangsters. And um, he, like, I did meet up with him after to give him back all his stuff because they kind of picked up the car and the rest and he told me all about it and said, like, yeah, if, if you were in there as a non-Afrikaans-speaking person, like, it would have been pretty hectic for you. Like, they would have targeted you for sure and all this. And so apparently these gangsters will kind of go all around one by one and sort of asking Afrikaans, like, who you are, why you're here, all the rest, and pretty intimidating and they're like this is really nothing compared to your jail story but anyway no um, this is pretty fucking dude, hectic, bro. So i'm fucking on tenderhooks yeah. here fucking <laughs> south africa would shock though that's like the wild west that may as well be fucking bogota colombia i know what that shit's like and it's not nice yeah it's hectic and so he's kind of trying to mind his own business and um they're just sort of being intimidating towards him and interrogating. And anyway, like after an hour or so or however long it was, one, like one of them had a phone and it went off and the security guard heard. And so like they all get in a frantic panic and like w- one of them shoves the Nokia 3315 or whatever it was up their ass to hide it. And so, but the guard heard the text message and he knew what was going on. And um, so he kind of been in and said, all right, I know someone's got a phone. I'm going to come back in five minutes and you're going to offer it up. And so whoever's got the phone up their ass freaks out and then, you know, ejects and someone else shoves it up their ass. So it's, you know, it's no wonder like fucking Very and, and yeah. all that shit goes on. Um, and so, and then they, they gave up on this, but they pulled the SIM card out. So they gave up the phone, but someone shoved the SIM card up their ass and they, checked the phone and knew that the sim card wasn't in there and so they go all right strip search everyone starting with you jacques number one yeah. strip and squat and all the rest and it would have just been a grueling ordeal and so anyway he eventually after all that bullshit he got up to the court and they just gave him community service for you know minor possession of this lsd which i'm not even sure if they treat as a, treat as a class a or whatever but um so yeah he just did i think 30 days of community service but yeah and it like, I'd seen him a few times after that, and he was always trying to make up for it. And yeah, just never really. Yeah, it's like, yeah, this is not safe like, anymore. You can get fucked <laughs> for putting me in that position. Yeah. It's so funny that you spend, you know, your passion is like great white sharks, and you spend time swimming with them and all of that. But the most dangerous situations you're going to be in are always with human beings. Yeah, absolutely. There's like no way I'd ever imagine anything hectic or dangerous happening with sharks in the right circumstances, which like, I guess there is a bit of assumed knowledge in knowing, you know, how to operate in those scenarios. But um, yeah, it's, yeah, I have far less worries on the ocean, even in you know, the five meter swells and hectic days I've been out at sea than I do. Yeah. In, in general society. Yeah. So my dad telling me that, um, there was a guy, I think, I, I think it was a guy that he grew up with um, that traveled through Africa. So this is in the sort of early 70s. He traveled through Africa on a push bike and he went to like all of these war-torn places and the crazy stuff that was going on in the 70s through South America, through Africa. And he was like sort of traversing the world on a push bike and it was like 
something he was writing a book or the plan was that he was gonna sort of go to all these different places that everyone thought were really crazy and sort of report back and be like you know human beings are innately good people and there's there's different circumstances and he got to manchester which was where dad was from and stopped there and was meant to continue through and go down through scotland and stuff and he got mugged and his bike stolen (laughs) 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 and he'd been through like places that you you just should never go yeah so like yeah never mogadishu bike survives manx (laughs) (laughs) exactly You know, like we, you, you talk about like apex predators and all that sort of stuff. But you ever met a road man? Yeah. <laughs> ever been in the concrete jungle? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Sharks are gonna, you know, suss you out or bite you, but they're not gonna fuck you over. You know. Yeah. No. It's um. Yeah. I, I worry far more. Yeah. In these places than and like I, I did a bit of traveling in very like outback South Africa where like we did this drive up to um this amazing place for diving where there's coral reefs it gets quite tropical and that and there's just no development whatsoever it's just literally a sand patch and the odd fence and a couple of cows nothing and that seems like the place where if you pull over anywhere you're going to get robbed and lose all your shit but honestly like the most welcoming and amazing place and like i'm glad it's like that because any other you know amazing dive destination has got so much development that you know it just takes away from the allure of it all Mm mm-hmm and yeah, I felt far safer in, you know, these kind of areas than, and Cape Town was a bit sketchy at times, but mostly I found it pretty awesome as well. Did you have any connection to South Africa before you got? The one connection I can remember is like my pop had this poster on his wall of Mossel Bay of this shark jumping out. Cause it's like the one place in the world where they, they breach. I think they've since found they do it elsewhere, but at, you know, at the time it was the world famous spot for shark breaching. And I just remember that. You know, I was probably eight or something seeing this poster. and uh, So that might have been the kind of inception of you wanting yeah. to wanting to do this. Yeah, and I'll, I'll go like on a tangent into like where it all sort of began with my grandparents and that. And that kind of worries me because it means that they'll probably listen to this and hear that story I told <laughs> before. But anyway, like... I I'm sure they're proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> the many sides of you. <laughs> and so like, I get this whole passion sort of started as like a young child. So my grandparents lived up in Karatha and my pop had built this shack out on one of the islands in like the 70s or something and so our like Christmas holiday every couple of years was we'd all go up to Karatha and spend a couple of weeks out at these islands and it was awesome like no reception no like running water or anything and you just sit in this shack and you go fishing and snorkeling every day and I remember being like maybe six years old and going snorkeling and turning this corner around a reef and seeing this white tip shark just sitting on this reef and absolutely shitting bricks mm. like fuck there's a shark i'm gonna die kind of thing like that fear you know and i never had it in perth and you know didn't spend much time by the beach or anything but these trips you know it just instilled this fear about sharks because he had all these jaws in the in the shack from tigers that he's caught in you know the days gone past and all the rest and yeah it always kind of he kind of instilled i guess a sense of fear about him and you know well maybe not fear but awareness i guess and so i was scared shitless as a kid but um you know we'd keep going up there and like that i remember doing like a assignment in year three on sharks and like it just totally switched from this fear into like an awe and a fascination with these things which basically took me down this path to go all right 
like I could do economics. It was my favorite subject in high school and go do commerce and all the rest. But I really like sharks. I'm going to go try and do that. And so, yeah, I fully credit like my pop and those years we spent. And like we, we had a troubled childhood. We weren't very well off and everything, but they, they'd done well up in Caratha and they would bring us up every couple of years. And that was our holiday. And like, I think of myself as so lucky to having seen that and not many people have still to this day. And, you know, there's amazing reefs and stuff out there that I'm very lucky to see. And yeah, to his credit, that's like kind of where this all began. Mm. It's so cool, man. I think there's, we, we're so fortunate to grow up in a place like this where we are exposed to those things. Like I used to go and um, holiday down in Calbarry and, and um, Augusta and stuff like that. And the same thing, you know, not very well off, but you go stay in a caravan park and you can go down and you see, you know, the stingrays coming up and you can go fishing and, and do all this stuff and you get this sort of sense of, of beauty and, and nature yeah. in its actual raw form yeah Yeah. not not going to an aquarium and and things like that you know it's just out there and it's you know like we have such a massive coastline with so many like from the south coast all the way up like so many beautiful destinations and it's all untouched and like you compare it to you know southern california for example same stretch of coastline but how developed is that like it's just we're so lucky to be here in this fated stretch of land Mm. that you know makes you feel so isolated but now during covid it's like Thank God we have all of this. Yeah, it's, it's, there's definitely worse places to be stranded. Absolutely. I think, so as kind of a, you kind of identify yourself as a, as a conservationist, um, obviously the protection of these species and the protection of nature and things like that is just something that's like ultra important to you. Yeah. Do you think that that is at risk at the moment? Like from your point of view, do you think it's at risk or is, is that kind of more of a hype topic than it should be? Is the ecosystem going to survive humanity? I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of bad stuff going on and we've reached a pretty pivotal point. And um, like for the last two years working as a consultant and kind of implementing the environmental legislation that we have, it has made me worry a lot more than when I was just a blind greenie in second year of uni, you know, seeing these stories about coral bleaching and all the rest. Um, and it's remarkable how resilient these ecosystems can be and how, you know, places that looked destroyed are, you know, improving year on year as well. So, it's you know, there's a constant state of flux, but I am worried just in the, the level of environmental protection that our state and federal legislation actually allows us to achieve. Like, this shit that we implement is from 1986 and it was outdated then. It's now horribly outdated now. And, like, developments can go ahead and basically not have to prove shit, not have to monitor shit to um, maintain a level of ecosystem quality that, you know, is just, like, based on no baseline data and all the rest. So there is a significant worry there. But also, like... The government, the state government is actually starting to make changes to those policies now. And, you know, the past sort of five years, there's been this heavy sort of polarized left front towards, you know, the destruction of the world is coming. And But now it's it seems at least I mean, it might just be me and my experience, but it's shifting a lot more to, you know, a place of central sort of practicality where both sides can agree and make progress and good things are starting to happen. And I think, yeah, no, like we've we've definitely turned a corner as far as far as all this, you know, net zero and all of these sort of global um, commitments are starting to take hold, and you know, the social license to do all these things is 
reached a point of strength that it can't be ignored anymore. And, you know, there's definitely a lot of um, damage and destruction happening, but there's a lot of hope for the future with all of that as well. That's good to hear. It's, it's good to hear someone that's actually like involved in that sort of stuff with it the perspective of that because i think that there is only really polarizing perspectives of that out there and i'm always interested to hear you know what's actually going on so mm-hmm. i have heard that like the great barrier reef is this there's parts of the great barrier reef that are starting to repair and come good Recover. and things like that whereas yeah. i've watched things before where it was like a hopeless yeah a hopeless venture and i think a lot of that comes down to like this the whole strong left agenda that was um they sort of realized that woe and misery doesn't actually motivate anyone to try and fix things and i think that whole dialogue has shifted as well to focus on the beautiful and figure out you know what areas are improving and how we can best help them and what data we need to use them as a model to improve other areas where it is more degraded and yeah, I think there's been a social shift as well as, you know, we're getting more data and we're learning more about the factors of resilience in ecosystems and how they can be, you know, helped along the way. But, um, yeah, no, the ocean temperatures are definitely changing and there is a big state of flux where some areas lose, some gain, but um, that's just got to play out so far and all we can do is, you know, work on these, you know, net zero targets and reduce emissions and, yeah, collect data trying to fig- try and try and figure it all out the best way that you can yeah and like the biggest thing about you know we always say we don't know that much and it's really because there's so many interrelated variables amongst all of these things that it's hard to figure out what the true root cause is and people can hypothesize and make their opinions about whatever they want regarding that but the fact is you can't isolate anything from the whole and you've got to figure out how it's all working together which is like a pretty impossible task yeah it's like a rubik's cube you move one piece, three others move. You have to be plotting so far ahead, mm-hmm. and you can't you can't study them all in isolation. But it's so hard when it comes to the ocean to study anything at all because of the amount of overhead associated with doing. Oh, it. Boats are so expensive. Oh. Like I used to go out on small boats and think, oh, this is a bit shit. And then you then you learn on <laughs> like fuel bill <laughs> on commercial jobs like these small boats. You know, like it's you know tens of thousands of dollars for a single field trip. And you know, you know when it comes to sharks, you might. You know, drop 50 to 100 grand and not see a shark yeah yeah and it's like no wonder there's not much data (laughs) exactly right it's so hard to do it it's crazy man do you think that there is a um social with with all of the social conversation that goes on about these topics and obviously it must be funny for you because you're deep entrenched in what's actually going on so you'll see all of the um the polarization and and the slander and everything that's going on on the internet in in contentious topics like this mm-hmm. does that conversation play into i suppose not not necessarily legislation but the way that people approach the work absolutely yeah big time um it definitely does and so like there's examples where so we've like the old company I used to work for that went under, um, they funded like three or $400,000 for UWA to do a study on their shark deterrent. And so with all these polarizing views, like when it comes to law and contracts and all that kind of legality stuff, it did those contentious issues really like stand a hold there. And so all of this research had been done. The papers had been written. They were ready to publish and it went through legal and they vetoed the whole thing and said, this is too risky to UWA's, you know, um, reputation because if we if we 
published this article that says, you know, this improves your risk of um, having a bad interaction with a shark and someone gets bitten, we're toast. And so that $400,000 went down the drain and no research, like three years of research was not published because the issue is so so contentious. Fuck, that, li- oh that literally God. happened. Yeah. I thought you were talking about hypothetical there for a minute. No, that happened. That's yeah. fucking ludicrous. Yeah, And this is the thing I think people don't understand that like w- when people are having these like armchair discussions about this stuff, it does seem like actually can negatively affect these things. Yeah, big time. And that's why like this, like I still cannot believe after three years, we finally got this research on Repeller published and that went through the ringer. Like we had... I, yeah, this will get political and dangerous quickly, but there's you know there's figures that are involved in Shark Shield that are involved in government departments that have strong kind of power and play in a lot of this stuff, and they threw the book at this research and tried everything they could to prevent it getting published. It went through three rounds of peer review, and the peer review process is supposed to be independent, but it was going straight back to these same people, and you know it's it's, it's highly political and like without any evidence and their their entire argument their slogan is based on well if you don't have research your product is meaningless mm. it's worthless and but they're the ones yeah that's a hot that take. gatekeeping yeah. that and it comes into so that comes into commerce just blocking yeah. everything yeah and you know there's the yeah there's that element there's obviously the politics as well that plays a lot into that fisheries are very careful with who they grant, grant exemptions and ethics approvals to do certain research too and like there's many clauses about we weren't allowed to say where we were, we weren't allowed to post any photos of the island. There was a, actually an investigation because there was all this hectic shit going on out there when we were doing the research as well, where there's there's a local that kind of discovered the hot spot and there was discovery out there shooting for Shark Week at the same time we were there. And just like this war between those two, we got dragged into and had to give like official police reports to like the Esperance Council about what had happened and... Like there's certain legalities about, um, so we were chumming, but they thought we were fishing and it's illegal to be fishing on a commercial or research vessel. And so that all happened and like it gets so hectic. And all at the, at the end of the day, you're just trying to gather data to yeah. better inform people and yeah. better serve people, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that arguably the most prestigious education facility in all of Western Australia doesn't have the balls to do anything positive about it either is kind of fucking disappointing, hey? Yeah. It's really <laughs> sad that these things can happen and it's not not on some conspiracy sh- theory shit. Like, that there is, like, social pressure and then there... More importantly, commercial pressure, yeah. like, enterprise pressure. Who's, yeah. who's funding this stuff? Where's the actual money coming from? Who has the say in what gets published, what get, doesn't yeah. get published? And Unfortunately, it's not on merit. No, it's not on merit and it's not on independence, which is mm. supposed to be like what the scientific method is. No shit. And then you hear stories of other researchers who are on their own ethics boards and approving their own <laughs> you know, research permits to conduct their work while ours is getting put through the ringer and we've had to, you know, retrospectively apply for the same ethics approvals again. And yeah, it's it's so political, it's crazy. It's and counterintuitive so- to the whole educationary process, yeah. you know, which I just don't understand. It's like freedom of information, the ability to to forward our species literally is being hampered by bureaucracy and politics. The problem with freedom of information is though that there's freedom of interpretation of information. Mm-hmm. In a lot, are, yeah, you for know, sure. Because like, people are like, oh no, like, I think this and I think that and my opinion matters. And it's well, like, that's, that's why speaking to someone that's actually a specialist in this stuff, it's like hearing that, that opinion-based science actually hinders 
fact-based and research-based science. Mm. It's sad. Do you think there's a way out of that? It's really hard because science is entirely dependent on funding and funding does not come out come without an opinion behind it. True. So they're, in, they're funding something for an outcome that they is beneficial to them or, or, or backs up their theoretical it's, position? It's not specifically that, but it's more so that the whole process is supposed to be unbiased, but they forgot this whole part where we're in an economy that requires money that doesn't come from nowhere or, you know, governments don't fund it. So it comes from places where, you know, bias inherently makes its way in. Yeah, it's very difficult to weed out that non-self-serving money. I think it's probably rare as well. Um, it's rare to get money from someone who just wants to know the truth or wants yeah. more information without a kind of undercurrent of um, of bias one way or the other. Yeah, is the um, is the science community as a whole, as far as your experience is, are they inherently on the the search for furthering science and hindered by these things? Yeah, it's a very niche field and it doesn't attract a huge amount of funding at the government level. So everyone's trying to progress and do good things and further the science, but they're just hindered by, you know, it's it's really an economic kind of issue. Um, And that's where it gets really frustrating when, you know, $4 million of government funding is thrown at drum lines when, you know, there's four companies, you know, pioneering far more innovative, Mm. you know, technology that are getting ignored. Um, and yeah, the money goes to like stupid stuff that everyone thinks will be, you know, the problem solver. And it's just because the Southwest Shark Group or whoever, you know, screamed, you know, jumped up and down. Or Perth enough. now, mate. I mean, often yep. they're pandering to the lowest common denominator. I mean, yep. the people who scream the loudest. Yeah, get the attention. Exactly. And the right. problem is as well that like um, polarizing opinions generate money. Mm-hmm. And like that's not a, a, a crazy thing to say. Like polarizing opinions, the more people are polarized, the more people are spending time arguing. Mm-hmm. The more that people, you know, it's 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 a place where money is. Yeah, comes money from, is made, and polarization is perpetuated, yeah. and which doesn't help science at all. No, because it's all about you know an independent, unbiased, you know, fact based decision. That is just not sexy. In yeah, a lot of that cases. might not be um, palatable for everyone. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. And that's why science communication is such a big thing. And like, this is a great opportunity that I've derailed with a few <laughs> certain conversations. No, I so, think but the, the thing great. is that with this is it's, it, you humanize yourself. Like if you, if it, I think in in a lot of ways, and we we found this like there's been insanely good feedback from this podcast, just from from people interpersonally saying, you know, I. I really liked this or I enjoyed this or it sparks conversation. Mm-hmm. And a big part of it, we're learning because we're still just learning as we're doing this. And it's very DIY as yeah. it goes back to what we were saying before be. yeah. is if you can be humanized and if people can understand you as a human being, they're going to be able to digest the things that you're saying to them. If, if people are being lectured, like if we came in here today and we're just like, tell us everything you know about sharks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Facts only. Listen exactly, to me. and it, yeah. it falls apart. So the the benefit of this, like long form conversation, this is a way of showing people that these facts these facts come from human beings. Yeah, you know what I mean. And yeah. the, the fact that you did LSD and got arrested does not <laughs> does not dismiss. 
I saw the beauty of sharks <laughs> in my eyes. Wait, wait a minute. Now that I go back, I just got razzed for playing fucking slow pitch softball. <laughs> but fucking old mate over here can go down to the lake and paint watercolors with his friend Jacques on, on LSD. He was on LSD and men. his story had M16s in it. Oh, true. That's what did it. It was the Jim Shepherd. What were you doing? Playing, just, just playing with men? Fuck. <laughs> How's his story less gay than mine? <laughs> uh, I think Jacques had the hots for me, though. I think that's why this whole happened. I, so, I yeah, definitely maybe got that just vibe. Gay. That's why he's still going. That's why he's still going with the um, the six monthly messages. Yeah. Is there anything? Um, we can tie this in in, in any way, but is there anything? Is there any sort of common misconception, or is there is there anything that you find when you talk to people? Um, cause I, when, when I spoke to you about doing this, cause as soon as I saw that post, I was like, man, I've got to speak to speak to you and yeah, see, see if you want to come on. Um, and you were saying that you don't want to be a internet activist and just be like arguing with every single person that has a, yeah. that has the, the wrong opinion on, um, the science that you actually study. Is there sort of a commonality of something that comes up all the time that you would like to dispel with some certainty or is there any sort of point that you want to get across? Yeah, so I often get asked by people and they're like, why has no one fucking done anything about this yet? Why hasn't this been figured out? And like, I guess this whole- This is a, this being attacks the, Yeah, deterrence and, you know, why no one's doing anything about all the shark attacks. And I guess the misconception is that if it's not on the mainstream media, then no, nothing's happening. And I guess a lot of this stuff that I've been involved with is pretty sort of, you know, niche or, you know, below the sort of general populace's level of knowledge and it gets caught up and derailed by all this kind of politics and bureaucracy. So, it, like, even if the work's been done, it never makes it out, like, half the time. Um, and so I guess the misconception is that, you know, even though stuff hasn't been published and, um, you know, it's not reported in Perth now or whatever, like, there is good stuff out there that can help you... Um, coexist with sharks if you're fearful or worried about them and i meet people all the time that go i can't surf anymore because wa is just is too scary for me and i go you don't have to be you know you don't have to be that fearful there is actually stuff out there that can equip you and empower you to get back out there and do the thing you love um and you know there's all these opinions about what works and what doesn't and there's all this work that gets done to figure out what works and what doesn't some of it never sees a light of day but um you know, if there's, you know, if there's someone you know about or a deterrent you know about or a local company that's doing something like in regards to improving shark management and technology and, you know, if you're a surfer and you want something out there but you're not sure what to get, like just call them up and speak to them. Like you don't have to rely on a news article or a scientific article or go in and speak to them. And You know, they're all just, you know, people that are, developing their own stuff and you know they work in a warehouse in osborne park or wherever it is they're highly accessible if you want to and you know talk about it rather than just sit back in fear i guess is there a um a reputable source that you would back information wise that, that you like um sort of subscribe to or that you check out is there anything that, that people can look into more yeah, and I mean, a lot of people are fearful of the ABC as well, and I get that. But there's a, there's a good um, sort of unbiased, genuine um, column, I guess, called The Conversation. 
and they have an online presence and they post articles that are generally like pretty pretty balanced and well well researched and if you're looking for information don't go to perth now go to theconversation.com.au gotcha i didn't know about that one so thanks very much so your um your moves forward from here you're you're currently applying for phd yeah, so I've, I've kind of been, yeah, I've always wanted to do a PhD. I knew that from the minute I started studying and it was a matter of if, no, sorry, a matter of when, not if, um, but I've had to wait for the right project to come up, which is pretty rare, I guess, in, you know, the field that I'm in, you know, it's pretty lucky to find, you know, a project studying sharks. And so one has come up with the CSIRO who have a project at Ningaloo um, called the Ningaloo Outlook, Outlook Project. And so they look at sharks turtles and coral reefs and it's like a you know a very large 10-year project where they're figuring out you know the resilience of these ecosystems and how to you know how it's all kind of functioning and how it can be improved and they fund several phds through this and so there's one really good phd that i've applied for which is looking at shark movement ecology at ningaloo and so there's been a bunch of work they've done with sort of reef sharks like lemon sharks black tips uh white tips all the rest and They've tagged a bunch of tiger sharks as well, and they have satellite tags on whale sharks, um, which is a really interesting field. Like that, that whale sharks hold a lot of weight when it comes to kind of um, marine management parks and zoning and that kind of stuff because they're such a kind of en- enigmatic species, and they still haven't figured out where they mate, where they reproduce, and all the rest. So, like, they're basically at the mercy of you know the oceans of the world and you know if they're out in the middle of the taiwan sea they're more likely to be you know hunted out there and there's no way of conserving the you know endangered species that they are um and so yeah there's like each one of those is probably a phd in it of itself i can't believe they got one in tokyo aquarium yeah like that's just wild i was what the like that is a insane aquarium in terms of size and volume yeah and still that thing makes it look kind of too small. It shouldn't, should not be in there. These things travel like thousands and thousands of kilometres a year. You're sticking like it in a thimble full of water, essentially. And I think that same, like Tokyo Aquarium, they've tried to have Great white sharks well. and yeah. they've, they've all died. Yep. Like they just don't function in those. Same thing of, happened at San Francisco too, didn't it? Yeah. 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 And I know they've had some tigers at some aquariums, but even then, you know, they're such highly migratory animals and they obviously do it for ecologically important reasons so they can't be confined to a tank and yeah anyway i digress so this phd is you know there's seven years of data on all of these different shark species at my disposal and i've got the opportunity to kind of develop it further with new tag technology where i'm looking at sort of the biologging and camera tags to investigate more about their fine scale movements and ultimately it all ties into um marine park zoning and how to protect the areas that make sure you know the critical life stages of these sharks are protected so you know juveniles aren't fished out in a mangrove area where they might be seeking nurseries or refuge and yeah so i'm awaiting the official uh offer for the phd i think i'm in good running Mm-hmm. They've given a few hints, and I'm hoping that for the next three years onward, that's where I'm kind of moving on from here. And that's going to be something that hopefully can make like a real difference. You know, you were saying before yeah. about you were consulting for mining companies and stuff here and freelancing, mm-hmm. and that not being able to, um, and being able to see, you know, what that actually 
entails being able to being not not necessarily being able to change things from from that from that um, consultant perspective. Yeah, so like ultimately you're you're working within the framework that's been provided, and you know the environmental legislation at the state and federal level is very outdated, and so you know there's only a limited amount of protection you can endorse and ultimately as a consultant you want to influence them for the better and most of the clients are pretty good and they're pretty keen on you know sound environmental practice and that but i guess it's pretty like bread and butter work where they're just they're meeting a requirement whereas you know this sort of academia field is looking at you know practical implications of marine park zoning in exmouth for the next 10 years or longer and you know having, you know, real world implications for, you know, the benefit of these species and curbing, um, I guess, you know, the effects of climate change in these, in these reef systems where they rely pretty heavily on keystone species like sharks and, you know, top order predators to keep everything in balance. And yeah. Do you think that um, with the, the backing of the CSIRO, that is um, more impervious to social pressures than, say, UWA? Yeah, I think they're, they're in a good position because they're they're both a government organisation and they're also like pseudo non-government, same way that like the Environmental Protection Agency is. So they're their own entity and they receive a lot of funding to do good works and, you know, like CSIRO created Wi-Fi, like, you know, they have smart cookies in there and, you know, it's a very solid institution and, you know, there's certain legal implications but they're less worried about their reputation and you know like the, the reason they discovered wi-fi is they spent 20 years doing something else and led to that so yeah they were trying to cook eggs better yeah and if um yeah if they, <laughs> no, that was completely fabricated <laughs> <laughs> if they if they do get any social pressure then they can um just take wi-fi away <laughs> <laughs> parental Basically, controls <laughs> Thanks so much, dude. I've got genuinely like it's super super interesting. I feel like I've learned a lot today. Yeah. About don't look at me like that. <laughs> I feel like I've learned a lot as well. Josh. Raise your eyebrows at me. Let's have a man social get together after this or what? <laughs> Couple of social. That was men. a softball thing. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Appreciate you. Um we yeah, we'll post your socials on on the thing. Keep doing what you're doing, man. It's super it's super inspiring. I've always I'm so glad that we actually got to sit down and have a two and a half conversation two and a half hour conversation about this sort of stuff because it's super interesting. Cheers, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks, great. Peace. Club Point. Club Good. Club Good. Club Good.